We, we can't <laughs> we have a whole podcast of this. We cannot we do it. Could. Well, we could, but let's not. We should not do it. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books or short stories with a special guest. This month we're reading A Collegiate Casting Out of Devilish Devices, um, a story that we're going to be giving urgent consideration and have formed a committee to do. <laughs> Plus, we'll be returning to Thud to get through some more of your great questions and we're doing both of those with our returning guest, designer and educator Matt Roden. Welcome back, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. Hello. It feels like just the other day you were here. It was like just the other day, wasn't it? Just the other week, the other month. What, what is time? Yeah. I mean, like a monthly uh, podcast gives you a good sense of how long things happen between. So, yeah, let's, yeah. <laughs> You'd think so, <laughs> wouldn't it, you? It's really nice to be back. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us in this part four of our trilogy in four parts covering all things thud. Who knew there were so many things to cover for this book, but there are. And we got, we got 80% one more. through our quintology. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I asked this last time, but have either of you, for, for starters, I know that Liz, you've read Where's My Cow? And Matt, we've, mm. we've done a whole episode since we last saw you about the book Where's My Cow? Have you read the, the children's book? I haven't. And I guess I just assumed that it was basically what the excerpts in the book gave, but I don't know what other depths there are to it. So it's one for me to dip into, especially now that I feel like I'm some sort of thud completist or I'm getting towards. <laughs> That's fair. No, you definitely I, should check it out. There's some interesting stuff happening with the illustrations and multiple levels of breaking walls, so it's worth having a look. Yeah. Does it reach the heights that there's a monster at the end of my book? That was kind of oh. the first break the fourth wall experience I had as a child. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Ben, I'm getting huge recognition from you. Yes. I, I we, do not know this book. We we got asked, you know, what other books do you think you should definitely read that are for kids, and that was one of mine because it's so good. Um, What's the spoiler at the end? Is it? Is there a mirror? No, I'm not spoiling it on this podcast. <laughs> okay, fine. I'm not, not going to do it. I'll tell you privately, but I'm no, not I'll, spoiling it. No, I'll get it. the book. You get the book. Yeah, you should read the book. Find a copy. Read the book. Um, but also, I was just wondering, I don't know that I asked either of you if you'd ever played the game, Thud. I have not. I'm I'm strangely patchy in board games. Like I get really into some, but then there's huge chasms of like things that you'd think I'd have played, but I haven't. Hmm. I have not, and I am entirely chasmatic when it comes to board games. Um, there's no patchiness for me. Uh, an entire Coombs Valley's worth of non-board game <laughs> experience. I love the idea of them, and I have people in my life who are very obsessive over them. Mm. And But I'm not particularly competitive when it comes to like games and sports and things like that. Mm-hmm. I did purchase that board game Wingspan with the intent oh. of immersing myself in what it is to help birds with their life. I was like, yes, this is peaceful. This is non-competitive. The winners are birds. And uh, <laughs> I found out how far board games have 
progressed in their world building, how you use all the pieces and like the just the functionality of a board game has gone beyond. I felt like someone who'd driven a Model T Ford and then like hopped in a Tesla the next day and <laughs> and yeah, just Yeah. Have you seen that Auntie Donna clip about board games? I know Ben's been sent it about 15,000 times by most people in his life, but I'm, <laughs> yeah, I think about it every time I try and play a new board game because you have to spend, it feels like five hours learning how to play and pulling all the pieces out and doing a test round and then you get to actually play and then it's time to leave. Yep. Mm. I, I'm going to jump off and watch it and then I will just forward it to Ben to <laughs> yeah. that off. If you don't so send it to one. me, I will take that as another kind of message. Mm -hmm. I don't know what. I don't know what. It's interesting. I like your analogy of the Model T Ford there, because if that is anything, the board game, it's like a modern recreation of a Flintstones car. Like, it is based on ancient Viking board games, um, or at least inspired by them. It's not really based on them. The rules are are pretty simple, but the strategy is quite deep. So, it's a bit like chess, but much simpler than chess. But I I would encourage you to play it. It it is fun. And if if you visit Melbourne, I'll play it with you. All right, uh, invitation taken up in the future. All right, great. So I just Please I just that thought, I live in Melbourne and I have not received this invitation. Well, you have a standing invitation. <laughs> you you are oh, so I don't even get to sit down. Yeah, well, that's true. It's, well, it is yeah. actually my fault. I'm no, it's fine. We we will do it though. We will do it, uh, and no. we'll play all the other Discworld board games. We have plans to do that. It'll yeah, happen. It'll be fun. It'll happen. And then I'll send you the Auntie Donna clip. <laughs> I do always think of long running podcast co-hosts as essentially living in like bunk beds together um (laughs) it's even worse that you haven't like played this game being that i think of you as bunkies (laughs) i i think we we have listeners who have thought this listen just in case you don't know this liz and i do not live together we're also not a couple which a couple of people seem to think that we are um (laughs) which is i mean i like liz but just you know that's not how our lives are (laughs) We have other partners. Just clearing up the questions. We have different cats. It's all, yeah. Shall we, now that we've covered the other parts of the trilogy in four parts, shall we talk about a collegiate casting out of devilish devices? I honestly think that perhaps we should put this out to a subcommittee to decide whether or not we should discuss <laughs> this one right now and perhaps put it on the agenda to see if it's more suitable for next year or the year after. Mm, okay. I would probably create like a working doc and have that available for people to add notes into. And once those notes have accrued and kind of there's maybe a feeling that everyone has had their say, then it's worth revisiting um, in a meeting format where we can each voice the notes that we've added to the document. Mm, well, well, I before- could start a doodle poll to see what deadline we should complete the reading of the document by if everyone is comfortable. But um, I just think that we should have a Teams meeting beforehand to see if we're all happy using doodle poll or if anyone has any objections to that. The best way I've found to find that out, Liz, whether we should start a doodle poll before the team's meeting is to just set up a Monday board. Okay. All right. Well, I will ask my my assistant, um, who I haven't yet to hire, um, and we'll, we'll put that together. Mm. Okay. I'll see them on Slack. I think before we can do any of that, we need to have a preliminary study as to whether any of this is even feasible, and we're going to have to put that out to tender to find someone who can do that for us. So. First of all, though, does everyone have their working with children check? Yes. <laughs> oh God, we could we we, we can't have we a could whole podcast of this. We cannot we do it. Could. Well, we could, but let's not. We should not do it. Let's not do that. Um, let okay. let. Oh, oh no. Let's get into it. Let's get uh, into the 
the short story that's only like seven pages long. We should. It is very short. But way too familiar. Before we talk about the story itself, rather than reading the blurb, which of course doesn't really exist for a short story, we instead read Pratchett's notes from his collection of his short stories. And here they are for a collegiate casting out of devilish devices. Well, they asked for it and they got it, because at that time there was some debate around issues to do with government money being given to universities and universities not being particularly happy about being told what to do by governments. Fortunately for Unseen University, they don't have to ask anybody for anything. And only now can I reveal that this short passage owes a little something to the Thursday afternoon meetings I used to have when I was chairman of the Society of Authors, where I learned the importance of listening for the tea trolley and the etiquette of the chocolate biscuits, surely an essential component of real committee work. (laughs) I don't know about you, I had no doubt when reading this that it was clearly based on real life (laughs) experience. I mean, taken to extremes, but yes. Is it taken to extremes? A little bit. No. I don't think there's any- You're shaking your head. (laughs) I think he's just subbed in some wizard names and there you go. I was going to say the exact same thing. He's done, a, he's done a great find and replace so that there's like a joke about a crystal ball. But other than that, I was literally reading the, the notes from my last meeting. Oh, mm-hmm. no. Oh, no. This is, yeah. Well, I mean, look, we all of us have worked at various kinds of cultural institution, right? I feel like we've all been there. And I, I used to work. In fact, full disclosure, I currently am about to work again for a university. Of wizards? Sadly not. Sadly not. Yeah. But I always used to joke that, you know, if you think government bureaucracy is Byzantine, you know, you should come and work at a university that's existed for more than 10 years. Like, it's it's full I on. can't even imagine because I, I once did a, a panel at a uni when I was mm-hmm. VoiceWorks editor and to invoice for it for like some small amount of money, they made me sign on as a casual contractor and put in all of these forms, including superannuation. I'm like, please just let me invoice. I don't work here. But it was just this arduous process that took so long. And I was like, mm, nowhere else. So I can't imagine what it's like actually spending a little bit longer there. I can't imagine what it's like, and I don't, but I don't want to. Well, I mean, look, some things get easier <laughs> and some things get more difficult. Yes. So I, I think we all feel like we've had some sort of experience. And I will apologize uh, for anyone for whom this brings up difficult memories if you have worked at a university yourself, because, yeah, look, it is. Whew, uh, I mean, we, we joke, we joke. It's not that it's not that bad, but it is. Oh, uh, we should describe what it is, because there will be some people listening who maybe haven't read this. This is a Thursday afternoon meeting as were the meetings that Pratchett had at the Society of Authors. And I looked this up because I didn't know what the Society of Authors was, but it's basically the trade union for writers in the UK, uh, writers, illustrators, and uh, literary translators, but all kinds of writers, even though it's called the Society of Authors. And it's been around for like 200 years, 150 years, something like that now. And he was the chair of their management committee for a year in, uh, I think, 1994 to 1995. So this this is an insight <laughs> into the running of that organization as well. But anyway, this is a Thursday afternoon meeting of the college council at Unseen University. They're just really, they're just waiting for the tea to arrive while they- And the chocolate biscuits. Yeah. Well, yes, they are very important. Um, while they wait for this. And it was, it was published before Thud, but not very much before, only about four or five months before. So I think it's probably written around the same time as Thud was being written. So it's, it's, is anyone's guess whether he invented a pessimal 
for this or for Thud and then sort of went, oh, but I could put him in this story about the Unseen University for the Times Higher Education Supplement who've asked me to write a thing. I don't know. Do you have an opinion about that? Where do you think he came from? From this or from Thud? I think he probably popped up here first. This is such a complete great idea, which is just, you know, what if the Unseen University was put under the same kind of, I don't know, strictures as other academic institutions are in the round world. And mm-hmm. um, and then you come up with a name like A.E. Pesimal and you want to bring that person to life because, you know, their voice in a document that's read out loud by somebody else is so clear and so perfect <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because he does not appear. I, when I, when I first read this, I was expecting him to be in it. And then he's not in it. He's just, he's sent this list of questions <laughs> that the wizards are reading out. But you're right. He does come through loud and clear. It's funny because I was going to say the other way around. I thought that he'd invented him for Thud and he wants, and he was just in his head. And he's like, where else would he be? Like, what kind of, before he becomes this other thing that he evolves into, where else would he have popped up? Like, well, how would have he been used by the patrician? This kind of thing. But, I don't know. You've swayed me the other way. I reckon it could be either one now. Hmm. I I was thinking Thud first, but I think because he also does, from memory, I think he does insert a reference in Thud, a very vague reference to him having had something to do with the university or having done something for the patrician before. So it could, yeah, it could have gone either way. And I don't think it, it matters too much for this discussion, oh, it's but I, it's a, fun. Such a peevish name. Though. I'm sorry to any AE pessimals who are listening, but it's just <laughs> such a peevish name. <laughs> It's perfect. It's it's Dickens' level of just like the name tells you everything about the character before you've even Uriah Heap. <laughs> in this, they don't open their mouth or arrive in the way. They just are fully rounded out as a signature on a memo. Yeah. Mm. Pratchett is so good at names, though. Mm. Like, there's very few of his characters where the name doesn't really fit. A few of them are maybe a little bit over the top in terms of telling you who the character is, but that serves the comedy and often it's for characters that don't spend much time in the book. But there's no characters where you read the name and you go, that name doesn't suit that person. Like, he really just nails it every time, I feel. So, in the story, A.E. Passamore has provided a list of suggestions at veterinary's direction that the university might consider taking up to improve things around there. And so, the story is taken up by them going through this list of suggestions and everyone just sort of getting very offended, um, worried. <laughs> and, and Outraged. Mixed, yeah. <laughs> concerned about how things might go. Um, Defensive, yeah, um, standoffish. <laughs> Defensive, that's the word. <laughs> These are all words that will appear in uh, none of the documentation of this meeting, but they should. And it just prompts some great lines and people trying to define what their job is or not, not quite, or being forced to say what it is they do, which I really enjoyed. And also being compared to another institution, which they hated. And it was just so good because there was this one where this other university actively trying to get students on board and they offer them, was it a frog or a frog-like creature? Oh, yeah. At Brazenick College. We haven't encountered Brazenet College yet because we haven't got up to Unseen Academicals where we will properly meet them. They are sort of the yardstick against which the university is being measured. And I think that just makes everything worse for the wizards. They're like, we don't want to be compared to those idiots. Well, there's this great page in there. Like, there's my favourite my favorite page out of this very short story, <laughs> which is just stuff full of lines that take aim at all these things about academia, which, again, I'm not heavily involved in, but the thing about... Brazenek publishing papers and they're like, what sort of papers are there? And they're like, they've got titles like diothumic aspects of cheese and mice or possibly it was mice and cheese or maybe chess. 
And what was it about, said the dean? Oh, I don't think it was for reading. It was for having written, which is, yeah. <laughs> if you've ever had to wade through some papers, it's, hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm this- worried about offending everyone through my history by going too hard on on this. <laughs> Do you both feel this is one where, okay, so I think within this short story, Terry Pratchett is absolutely taking a good sharp aim at the ridiculousness of committee meetings and mm. also, you know, w- what it is like when institutions receive like some feedback or the government is like, well, we gave you some money. Could you tell us what you did with that money and how affronted <laughs> some people can be in that? But I mean, I don't think... Pratchett thinks that all of academia is ridiculous. Is this just kind of his scattershot, everything is worthy of satire because everything can be satirised? I think there's a bit of that. I mean, he famously loved academia. Like, towards the end of his life, he dreamed of, in his retirement, just becoming, like, you know, an adjunct professor of some university somewhere so he could just spend all his time in the library and getting big dinners like the Wizards in Unseen University. And I I think it started off as a parody of this thing that he'd never encountered directly because he never studied at a university. And I think he does have or did have a a great deal of disdain for the sort of, you know, big institutions like, you know, Oxbridge. But I think he still also thought, oh, but there's a point to it. And there's a great bit in the biography, which I won't spoil too much. We've told a few stories from it since we've read it. But um, there's a great bit in the biography where he talks about the first time he was invited to Trinity College, which was one of the first universities to give him an honorary degree. And they asked him to teach a class of students. So he was like, what am I going to do? And then like by the end of it, he was having a great time and he loved it. And I think, you know, when he got to experience what it's actually like, at least the teaching part, he thought, this is great. But then, you know, the the wizards are, as this story goes to great pains to point out, they really do not like students. (laughs) They don't want to be about that. Do you feel any of the wizards in this? And I loved it as just a snapshot of like this ridiculous group. Do you feel any of the wizards ever wanted to become academics or do you think they wanted to become wizards or do you think they just ended up in this space, which allowed them to have like lunches and sit around and kind of, you know, waffle onto each other? It's difficult. I really, I like that they do rise to the responsibility of being a wizard sometimes. And they're Mm. very like, I care a lot about what it is to be a wizard. But the idea that, not, that they will hate teaching and yet they are at a university and <laughs> so, for sometimes it seems like the best appeal of being a wizard is that you, as uh, Rid Carly says, dynamically don't do something. Yeah, yeah, which is very much a recurring joke throughout all the books, you know, that that's what wizards do best, you know, is make sure they're not misusing magic, basically. And the idea of the university is to get all the people with magical powers and stick them in a place where we teach them that it's a very bad idea to use those powers and you should just sit around and have big dinners instead. I think it's an interesting question because Unseen University has been like at least three or four different things in terms of what it's parodying and the kind of story aspects that it not story aspect, and the kind of thing that it represents in the stories. Like in the early ones, you know, where you have this very kind of cutthroat, dead man's pointy boots uh, kind of deal where the wizards have to murder each other to arise up the ranks of the eight different schools of magic. It's very Dungeons and Dragons slash, you know, uh, assassin's school, really, like is what it feels like, an idea that he comes back to with an actual assassin's school later. But then it kind of evolves from that into this parody of very old institutions where the people who run them are rusted on and out of touch and don't really care about what's going on. 
And then at the same time, you've also got in moving pictures, actual students doing actual exams and seemingly going to actual classes. And in equal rights, you've got like Simon and Esk who end up, you know, they're doing interesting, weird stuff. They seem to be at the forefront of magic and then they just vanish and you don't hear from them until ages for years. So I think it's kind of evolved. I don't know. I, I get the feeling he's just had several different ideas about what would be fun. And it's when Rid Cully turns up that he's like, okay, well, let's turn it into an actual university. We've had a few jokes about that, but let's make it an actual university. I mean, there's still classes in this one as strongly implied by the fact that there's like that guy who sets up tripwires and stuff to prevent <laughs> the wrong kind of students from getting into his classes. So I feel like that aspect still runs through. I agree that it's changed across it's time, but um, it's hard to know because I feel like everyone here never considered being anything other than a wizard. So it's not so much they sort of went, oh, well, you know, I just want to, I, I have to learn magic, but I'd rather do this. It's perhaps this is what being a wizard means. It means that you have all the knowledge. You can jump into action if you need to, but you generally don't. It's kind of, again, like Granny Weatherwax's whole thing of not using the magic, but controlling everything. They all love being wizards, in my opinion, but also never considered another path. So it's a bit tricky. So when you ask them to define what it is they do, it's kind of like asking to define themselves as people because it's all intermixed into one thing. So, Yeah, I like your um, idea that they were just kind of like born like this. Uh, Liz, uh, are wizards like the Discworld's like Nepo babies, just to use a term which is in the Discworld, <laughs> where if you're born as the eighth son of an eighth son, this is just the life you're in. And they and just like those young people who describe themselves as influencers slash actors slash DJs slash photographers, these people are like, oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I am wizard, full stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does seem to be a thing that you are rather than a thing that you do. Rincewind is actually the poster child for that because he never does any magic unless there's some weird influence on him that makes it possible. But he is adamantly a wizard. And when everybody's going crazy, when the sorcerer turns up, there's that scene where he's on the beach and he's trying to build his own little wizard tower in his sleep out of sand. Mm. And it's and when he loses his hat, he feels like he doesn't really exist. And like it's integral to his identity in a way that I think it is, even though it's never said as clearly or as directly to all the other wizards as well. So this idea that they have to get on with the business of doing things as a wizard is kind of just like, no, 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 no. Yeah, no. isn't it enough just to be? Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. And because they can't not anyway, so like. Yeah. Do we ask the ocean what it does all day? Yeah. Do we ask the moon what it's up to? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and it's offensive to do so. Yeah. I, I do not know how I feel about bringing Nepo Baby discourse into Discworld, but um, if we're going to, I feel like we need to talk about Susan. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> no, she earns it. She tries to reject all of that. Uh, yeah, but you can earn it and be a Nepo Baby. Yeah. Didn't you read the article, Ben? Come on. No. <laughs> no. Now I have to put it in our episode notes, and I blame you for that. Kay Listen, Hudson, she's a Nepo Baby, but she absolutely earns it. Okay. No, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, the other question this raised for me was how much hold the patrician really has over the university. Because the main thing that he's got over them is that I could ask you to pay taxes. There's a great bit in one of the early books where they basically have a standoff. It's him and Red Cully 
we won't pay taxes, but, you know, we, we agree that we would if you ever asked us to on the understanding that you will never ask us to, <laughs> I think is basically where it comes from. And this story is leveraging that position too, because they don't, because they, I mean, they have all these dinners, they've got this massive real estate in Unseen University. How they make money is not entirely clear. I think probably there's some talk at some point, I think, of rentals or old wizards who have got lots of money bequeathing it to the university. There's, there's a couple of like little references here and there, but it seems clear that they're not actually funded by the city itself. So instead, you know, to, to go along with this narrative of I'm writing this because there's a current discourse about universities and their funding. Instead, it has to be about, well, we're going to make you pay taxes, which is kind of like taking away your funding because <laughs> you can't spend it on your crazy high energy magic experiments, which might blow up the whole city. I mean, every now and then- we a straight. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And they make a whole street disappear in time, apparently, which is what, what's pissed off the patrician and made him do this. That brings a new meaning to hex debt there, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> That's one for uh, Australian listeners of a certain age, because it's not even called that anymore. Yeah, now it's called help, which is like really distressing to see on your like tax each year. Yeah, because yeah, it's in capital letters because it's an acronym as well. It's just like help. Yeah. Help. Debt. Yeah. Let me explain. University was free in Australia for about 15 years from 1974. But in 1989, this was changed so that students paid a fee towards the costs of their study. This student loan program was called HEX, an acronym for Higher Education Contribution Scheme. You could pay it voluntarily or defer it to be paid as part of your taxes once you earn above a certain threshold of income, in which case it's called a HEX debt. This system was heavily revised and made much more expensive in 1996 and then replaced in 2005 by HELP, the Higher Education Loan Program, though for undergraduate students it's actually called HEX HELP which sounds like a phone counselling service for people who've been cursed. And to be fair, now that discounts for paying the hex debt up front have been abolished and the threshold lowered for paying it with your tax, it certainly can feel like a curse. I feel like this is kind of just veterinary. Like, he's not expecting anything to come of it. He doesn't expect them to follow these things. It's his way of being like, hello, I'm here and I could fuck shit up for you if I really wanted to. Just, just a reminder that I'm around. Is, is my take on why he's doing this. Cause he also loves a little committee and he knows what is happening when, like, he, if they mm. come back with, they're going to do the urgent consideration. He's like, yep. Okay. But as long as you've gotten my message. Veterinary is always of the school where it's enough to show a person the hoop. They don't need to actually jump through it. I feel like mm. this is part of that. Mm. That was a good way to put it. Yes. I agree. What about the things that are in this note from Pessimal though? Like the actual questions. There's what do you do? I think we've covered that, but I, I do like. <laughs> When Rid Cully's kind of going, mm, actually, maybe, Dean, we should ask this. Like, what do you actually do? And are you doing more of it in the last six months than you did in the six months before that? <laughs> Which is an interesting question about how the wizards spend their time when they're not having crazy adventures. Because the closest, apart from this story, that we ever really see of that is probably the first science of Discworld book. Because the other ones, there's like some crisis happening that they have to address. Whereas in the first one, it's just a magical experiment that they're messing around with. It feels a bit like, oh, this is what they spend their time doing, <laughs> doing stupid experiments with magic. I reckon they're all very busy, not doing much at all, but feeling very stressed and put upon all the same. Like, there's probably just a lot of admin to keep up the nothing. Yeah. Is it Lords and Ladies where, like, we see Reed Cully's um, snooker table, which is covered in drifts of paperwork, and he's, like, working out the best 
you know, he's taking these magical pot shots around it. And that's the <laughs> feeling that I get where like, you know, not to bring up Trump, but I think like Reed Cully's executive time is uh, pretty extended where it's, you know, he picks up the first piece of paper, yells at somebody to do something about it, probably the bursa. And then, you know, that's enough of that business. And it's probably time for um, second morning teas around then. McDonald's for all. Is that now? See, I kind of agree with you, but also reading this story, it occurred to me that I find this difficult because I really like the wizards, but I don't like that attitude <laughs> that we just don't have to do anything. We just got eat lots of dinners and, you know, screw all the students. We don't have to teach them. We don't even need them. But where are more wizards coming from if there are no students? It was the School of Hard Knocks thing kind of like because they all went through it and so the students will go through the same and the ones that deserve to stay are the ones who will make it. So like the ones who survive the traps, the ones who understand the politics, the ones who have the correct lunch dates, all of that. Like hmm. they, because the ones who are supposed to be wizards will stay wizards. You don't have to learn stuff to we- do it. You pick it up along the way, not through the formal studying. Mm, but you kind of do, though. I mean, because there's times in the books where it's kind of talked about that if you are a wizard and you don't get taught how to do it properly, you're probably going to blow yourself up or turn someone into a newt who doesn't need to be turned into a newt, you know, or something. So, yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, like, not being formally taught in a class or whatever. Like, they probably all have their, like, unofficial protégés or whatever, the ones that they throw a few notes to or they learn from each other or they go to the library. They They learn, but mm. not through, like going to class in classic university ways, it's like, again, you find your way through. It's just they're not going to hold you by the hand. And there's a huge attrition rate, surely. I feel like this is also just a sampling of the entirety of the Unseen University. This is the five people who get together and have lunch together every day Mm. and then accidentally, you know, save the world 15 times. But... Yeah, there there are other rankings of wizards who are, you know, they pop up every now and again and... Yeah, They're doing things in odd corners of the building and I assume they are teaching classes. And this is like your leadership team who have risen above the need to actually do things. They've they've all got tenure and they're just puttering around writing five pages of a document over 17 years. Mm. This is the chancellery. Or 17 pages over five years. Sorry, um, credit where it's due. (laughs) Thinking about tablelocity. Yeah. I sometimes don't have like a clear sense of who the wizards are compared to each other. Mm. Like if you asked me to like very clearly define the senior wrangler versus the chair of indefinite studies, <laughs> like I don't, I don't have a lot to work with there. Mm. But I tried to use this very small, condensed, quick bite to go like, okay, what are their, what are their personality types? Oh, yeah. We all know the dean is like the most gung-ho and like um and impressionable yeah yeah we know the dean we know ponder stevens and we know rid cully yeah but for the other three main ones i felt like the chair is kind of like the intellectual snob in this one um Mm -hmm. there's a couple of moments where he's like the most adamant against the other university and also that they should let in students who aren't kind of top-notch i thought the lecturer was the most peevishly undervalued (laughs) as in he was like I like I do all this work. I've been writing this really incredible <laughs> paper and no one's paying attention to it. Like he's very defensive in that. Uh-huh. And for me, this one rang really true. I always remember this feeling that the senior wrangler is like the greatest shirker of, <laughs> of responsibility or stepping up to the plate. He always seems to be the one who mumbles out of the situation. It's like, oh, well, well, and kind of takes, takes one large step back when it's who's ready to save the world. And in this, it's one large step back when it's, 
hey, let's just think about what we do as our job for, for 10 seconds. There's never a situation that he rises to. I feel, I feel like this needs to be a chart, like a personality chart, like one of those like Dolly Magazine ones. It's like, okay, so you're in a meeting. Do you yes, no? And then it ends up with which one of these you are. <laughs> well, now we have to make that chart now that you've said this, Liz. The issue of Dolly, which is like, what do you do in a meeting? Which fictional <laughs> wizard are you? Is a great issue. But those personality types are spot on. I think that's great. And now what I want to do, though, is I'm going to write them up. And then next time we read a book with all the wizards in, I'm going to be like, oh, does this hold up? I think it does. It's, mm. it's, I think it's I think it's accurate. We got partway through the list because the things that he wanted them to do is, first of all, explain what they do, but also maybe get more students in. Can you advertise for students? Can you get more students? This will be beneficial for the city. Like, it'll bring money into the city. It'll elevate your prestige. And they're like... No, but I I do want to say, Liz, you were talking before that you think they still have students now because of the whole thing with the teacher who set traps. Um, Mm. I think that's from when the Arch-Chancellor was a student. I don't think that's current. And I think all the things that they think about being a student are all from when they were students because they deliberately and as much as humanly possible ignore (laughs) the students who are currently in the university I am happy to put that aside, but I do think that the idea of these being like a little pocket of outside the actual day-to-day of the university mm. theory that was raised holds true and that there's still like university life happening below their like realm of interest. Yeah, so I, I think there would still that. be un- student because there's there'll be lots of Nepo babies being born needing <laughs> to go somewhere and what blaze at university is not going to take them all. No, well, no. That's true. But the main time we saw students last was when Ponder was a student, when he sat the exam and got top marks because he accidentally got the exam meant for Victor Chugelbent. <laughs> and that was also when Ridcully first became Arch-Chancellor. So we've seen, you know, Ponder rise since then to the position he's in now where um, he's got two jobs. And I love the way they describe his jobs because he's the head of inadvisably applied magic, which we already knew, but he's also the university's prelector, uh, which it says is a position interpreted in Unseen University as the one who gets given the tedious job. So he's actually doing the stuff. And I think he's the interface between this group, which I think you're absolutely right, Liz, is this sort of microcosm of let's not do anything and the rest of the university where things actually have to happen. So I think they're still students. Yeah. Even if they don't see them. Well, Ponder seems to have students in the high energy magic building, particularly in the early um, Science of Discworld books, particularly the first one. And any time you see Hex in the earlier books where Hex is in, you have that little group of clearly the nerdy computer science students, which I can totally, having been a nerdy computer science student at one point in my life, I could totally relate to all of them. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know who these guys are. The wizards, like computer science when I studied it, not a very uh, quality-driven, diverse group of people. Like, they're all men, for starters, which is on the Discworld a thing, because if you do magic and you're a woman, you're a witch, except in one notable circumstance. But they say, you know, let's attract young men who would not normally consider wizarding as a profession. And then later on, they're like, oh, but I think actually he's just trying to say, you know, because of circumstance, they wouldn't be able to do it. Not that they would be no good at it. They never say, you know, what they're going to make us take girls. Like, they don't. But I kind of feel like that should have been where it was going. I thought that was what was being implied. Mm. It is interesting because it's, you know, what it means to have, like, active, diverse kind of hiring is very 
I don't know, even different now than it was when this story was written. Mm, that's true. I think quotas or different methods for ensuring that whatever your population is within a space is better representative of the population of the greater space, you know, it runs in a different way. But I like that even with a lack of definition as to what diversity means, you know, we get diversity in the watch is always like, and, you know, jumping back to thud, like let's get a vampire Mm. in, that this is so undefined and they're still so incredulous about the whole thing. You know, it could just be people who like, I don't know, and like their family has this amount of less money or it could be people whose names start with X, Y, and Z because we don't have enough of those to like make the alphabet lists even on the um, the uh, list of students. But th- mm. they're just rejecting the idea that there should be any change in the process. Yeah. And it's interesting that they both say that there are entrance requirements of some sort, but they also have this great... <laughs> Rick Kelly has a great line. He says, no, we'll stick to an intake of 100% young fools because they're like, oh, we're not going to take like 40% people who maybe aren't as good at magic as you would expect because actually we want to take 100% of people who don't know what they're doing. Bring them in stupid, send them away clever. That's the UU way, he says, which kind of helps to explain a question that a few people have asked us in previous episodes of how did Rincewind get into this place? And I think in our headcanon, he's probably the poor eighth son of an eighth son who seemed to get in by default. You know, they just accept those people because they have to. It's part of how wizarding works. But now there's other magical institutions. There's other colleges. Those people can go somewhere else. And the university don't appear to have noticed a slacking off in how many people come through their door to learn magic. Does that suggest that they don't pay to go there because they haven't suffered any like impact to their coffers? Mm. Well, it's not because like, the bursar would notice that, surely. If so, well, at this point, the bursar noticed that. Well, it always seems to me that it's implied he is still perfectly capable of doing his job, no matter what else happens. Like the books of the university are still balanced, no matter how divorced from reality he becomes. No, I think he's high functioning in one area is how the bursing happens, but nothing much else does. That's what the frog pills are for. Yeah, but it seems like someone must be paying for it because, again, if we remember Victor Chugelbend, he's on a scholarship provided by an uncle. So if the bursar said to Rid Cully, oh, we're not having as much money, would he notice? Would he like, Or is that just in one of the stacks of paper that he's not reading? Well, yeah, that's true. They don't have, I mean, the, they've got the bursar and they've got Ponder, but they're kind of doing their own thing. There's nobody who works directly for Rid Cully who says, sir, these are the important things you really need to know about. <laughs> Who he listens but they have to. this meeting. It's implied every Thursday they have this meeting. So, <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? I think for all of them it's great, except for Ponder, for whom Thursday is perpetually a hell of him trying to get them to do anything that they need to do. <laughs> do you get that impression? He's the one in charge of the agenda. He's the one who reads through the notes. You know that person in the meeting, mm-hmm. and they're like, "So we should start the meeting." And then another person's like, "What type of biscuits did we get?" And then it's, well, hang on, I don't like those biscuits. And then it's 15 minutes in and Ponder is still like, could could we start the meeting? Like, could we just begin it? And then, like, we could make biscuits an agenda item, but we haven't begun it. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. I remember we went through a period at work of having like a COVID task force, which went on and on and on. And in some ways was fantastic and very helpful and, you know, did a lot of great work. And then mm. at another point became a meeting which was like, yes, we all agree that COVID still exists um, <laughs> and, and nothing else had changed within what we could do about it. Yeah. So then we, we uh, ticked that one off as a, you know, like a record 3.5 minute meeting and then had it in the calendar for an hour next week. 
I, uh, yeah, I very much relate to that. Oh, God. Do yeah. you relate to that sometimes when trying to, say, steer a podcast to a certain structure and some people are just going off on tangents about all kinds of things? You very well may think that, but I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> what I do want to comment on, though, <laughs> is that I think so, uh, as we get towards the end of the short story, we'll, we'll go through because there's some great lines. I think we want to read out some of these before we get on to some great questions that you've sent in, listener. Um, they're, they're fantastic. But um, I think the thing that I want to ask you that steering. is as we... <laughs> As they get towards the end and it says there's this and there's this, they only sort of bring up about four or five of the things that are on the list. And then Reed Kelly's like, anything else? And Stevens is like, lots, sir. Lots and lots. Like, it's clearly a big list. <laughs> what else do you think Percival's got on that list? Like, what else is he asking them? Because we never find out. Because this is when they, as you alluded to in our opening, Liz, they basically deal with it by deferring it to a committee, which means someone else will have to deal with it and- We'll um, put it on the agenda for next year to see what the committee has got up to or indeed if it's been formed. But what do you think? What do you think is on his list? So you've got, are they publishing? What are their student numbers? And a little bit about just like, what do you, if you're not publishing, what are you doing? Yeah. What are you actually doing there? Yeah. And something about ethics and, and uh, do you have an ethics committee? They have an ethics committee. (laughs) Which they (laughs) reject. They don't have ethics. So there's no need for the committee. (laughs) Yeah. Uh. I mean, it's just not true. Probably some very specific things about people on staff. Like, what oh. is this person specific? What purpose do they serve? Uh, maybe some specific budgetary line items around food and how many meals are had per day. <laughs> that would, yeah, that it needs a year just to document that. Maybe a whole section on what is presumably a long list of missing peoples in the university having just disappeared off into other realms and things. Mm. Um, why is your librarian an orangutan? Mm. Yep. I mean, a question to get someone in a lot of trouble, but sure. Mm. I, just, I feel like he'd have a lot of that. It'd just get down to some nitty gritty things. Like it starts off with the big picture stuff, but then it'd be a section of like long, specific questions. Mm. I think there'd be the university's impact on the city as a whole. What, like, um, maybe there's a question about like, what are you doing for um, visitors to the city? Should should mm. there be some like aspect of tourism involved with the university <laughs> if it is something which benefits from the city's name and uh, reputation? Mm. Uh, what mm. KPIs do you adhere to on a quarterly basis? <laughs> yeah, yep. What sort of culture and morale are you creating as an institution and organization, especially for young people? Mm. Are you thinking of putting on concerts in the quad? <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. I would love to see the reaction to that suggestion in this meeting room. <laughs> I guess the dean would be into it and everyone else might think no. Uh, yeah, I can imagine Rid Kelly would have mixed feelings about it. He'd probably initially be like, mm, yes, get them out of the fresh air. Yeah. And then he'd be like, they're doing what, though? Are they running around? Is it physical? Um, Maybe a yeah. section on health and safety. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Imposing a limit on how many times you can do the, was it the right of Ash Caente per, <laughs> per year? Yeah. Is it dangerous that you keep summoning death? I think we're going to see some of this stuff, I think, in the Science of Discworld 4, which we haven't got to yet. Uh, because I think in that one, we do see a bit of the university interacting with things outside the university, 
Whereas in the previous three Science of Discworld books, it's all about them and the round world project. Whereas in the fourth one, there's other people getting interested in that. So I think this is sort of a, a through line that develops by the time we get to that. I wonder if there's not a big question around what they're doing for the benefit of the city in terms of, like, you've got all this magic. What have you done for the city lately? To which their answer is probably like, well, we haven't blown it up <laughs> or, or made it vanish. And he's like, well, what about- Most of it. Yeah, most of it. What about Mayday Street or whatever it's called? Yeah, so I think that would have to be a big component of it. And I mean, look, this might be me thinking back to our own recent political history in Australia of the uh, the tests that the government wanted to impose on all university research to decide if it was in the public interest. But, you know, rather than a committee, independent committee deciding that, the minister would decide it or some horrible change that they tried to put through. Yeah, I I feel like there's something like that that the patrician might dangle over the university. I also think that there might be um, how can they help with diplomacy and would they consider doing exchange programs with universities elsewhere? Um, mm. And maybe are there any student-led initiatives that could come into play? So, I mean, thinking back to my uni days, we had things like International Food Fiesta and like charity things as well, but international food fiesta to celebrate the diversity of cultures and f- through food of all the different people in, in unseen university would be quite funny as there's just like 20 stalls of the same thing. <laughs> what? 17 of them would just be cabbage from the Stolat Plains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not really, I mean, they keep talking about and again, you know, this sort of goes back to what the history of the university is throughout the books. It's it's always described as the premier college of magic, but it's never described as the only one. And yet, I don't, I can't think of a single instance, apart from when we finally meet the people from Bresnik College, of us ever meeting a wizard from anywhere else. There's one very important exception, of course, for its own bugger up university, led by Arts Chancellor Bill Rinswint where they probably have a very different kind of hex debt. Like, even the ones who've left the university and gone on to have a career studied there, like Cutwell in Mort. Like, he, he set up his shop in Stolat, but he's from Unseen University. That's where he studied. And he never really does much in the way of magic either. So, I wonder if it's the case that lots of people study to be a wizard, but not all of them can actually do much magic. And it's not necessarily an impediment depending on the kind of thing that they want to do as a job afterwards. Yeah, I like that. You mean like getting a law degree and working in advertising? Yeah, or comedy, <laughs> which is what happens to most of the people with a law degree that I know. Yeah, uh, so that people go out and just sort of quietly have wizard qualifications they don't use. Mm, mm, doctor of Thaumatology. But it's about changing how you think, right? That's kind of what their whole thing is as well. Yeah. You send them out knowing how to think. You, you were talking about marketing, though. Cut, that's That was one of Cutwell's things. This is a kind of a new magic I've invented. I call it advertising. <laughs> um, yeah, so clearly that's the angle. Uh, look, I, I don't know that there's much to say else about the story itself, except maybe to look at some favourite bits before we get into some questions. I just had one favourite phrase. Mm. Uh, which was definition by hubbub. Uh, again, flashbacks to so many meetings where linguistic specificity takes over any concept of like larger ideas or the point of a conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed it. 
Yeah. Especially when the person who brings it up has the answer to what the thing means, but everybody else decides that they will decide collectively what it means. And by collectively, I mean like by volume of voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy the bit where everyone's just blustering over trying to define what it is they do and also trying not to do it because they can't, but also they feel they shouldn't have to. But I enjoy no wizard worth his soul tells other wizards what he's up to, snapped the lecture in recent runes. Besides, how can you measure thinking? You can count the tables a carpenter makes, but what kind of rule could measure the amount of thought necessary to define the essence of tableosity? And I just feel like I've had so many conversations where people are saying words that sound smart, but are actually nothing. And that's just such a nice distillation of it. Yeah. Yeah. Tableosity. I do like that. That's beautiful. There's so many good little gags in this, but I think my favorite one is quite near the start where Rid Cully is talking about the fact that Pessimal's been appointed. He says, anyway, gentlemen, his lordship has appointed a Mr. A.E. Pessimal, a man of whom I know little, as inspector of universities. His job, I suspect, is to drag us kicking and no doubt screaming into the century of the fruit bat. That was, in fact, the last century, Arch-Chancellor, said Ponder. Well, we are hard to drag and very good at kicking, said Rid Cully. <laughs> I just thought that was such a good comeback from him not knowing what century he's in. Uh, and I like how Pratchett also reuses Century the Fruit Bat because I think it's his favourite one without telling us what the actual current century is. Because <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Oh, has, it never, um, has there never been an update? I did know we were past the Century of the Fruit Bat. I am pretty sure it has actually been mentioned. I think it's... Uh, is there an anchovy? Uh, yeah, Century of the Anchovy. Yes, you're right. I couldn't tell, remember if that was the Century or one of the many years. <laughs> Which they still, they still declare a new one every year, which I, I find endlessly endearing. Um, we're about to, as, as you were listening to this listener, it is now newly the year of the querulous megapode. So enjoy, <laughs> enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. But there's so many good little lines. I mean, this is the thing, you know, you, you read a Pratchett short story and there should be like probably you'd think six or seven really good gags in it, but there's always like two or three times that number. And you're like, how is this possible? <laughs> What I really like about this story is just how it gives us a chance to apply like a different lens to Discworldy stuff. So the idea of like both like the committee meeting. So now I want the short story, which is about the decision to call it the century of the anchovy. Like how did they come to that decision? Hmm. And also the kind of um, bookkeeping and how that works with a whole bunch of stuff, which makes, you know, the amount of world building needed for us to understand how the Guild of Assassins works to then apply, like, bookkeeping to that or the Guild of um, Fools. Yeah. It's just nice. It's so nice anytime an extra bit of, I, I guess it points out, you know, if you're trying to build an entire world, you can do it really successfully without adding in, um, like, government oversight or uh, report keeping or committee meetings, uh, which might point to the fact that they're not essential in an actual world. <laughs> Like how much fun it is to add them back into a world. Do you think the other guilds have these? Like, so, like, does the Assassin's Guild have a version of this and does it run exactly the same or is it, like, a lot more like the guy wandering around with a baseball bat, like, at a I mafia? Think, you know? I feel like Pezimul has been sent out to a few places and, you know, finds his home in the watch, but may- maybe he's been doing this for a while. You wouldn't start with the the university, surely. No. No, you'd have to work no. your way up. The the guild of um I don't know hat makers or 
the uh, musicians killed? Well, well no, no, they're dangerous. Horrendously dangerous. <laughs> yeah. All right. Seamstresses? Mm, also quite dangerous. <laughs> dangerous, but, like, I think would handle a committee better than this. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yes. Mm. Um, well, on that note, should we take some questions from our own set of inspectors of podcasts and recappers? We got some great questions. Thank you for everyone who's sending questions. I think we're going to be able to cover all of these. They're good. And a couple of people wrote questions that we really need to read out in full because they spent a bit of time thinking about how they were going to put their question. And I'm very impressed. Uh, but Liz, which one are we going to start with? Um, let's start with this one from Molokov, which um, is a beautiful question that I think is designed to get right into the core of ourselves as people and possibly alienate our friends. So I'll read out both both parts of it. All right. So... Which of the committee members matches your personality the most? I'm probably most ponder, so wanting to get things organized and done. And two, do you know an AE pessimal? Are they annoying, useful, or a bit of both? Do we all... I, I feel like all the three of us have at least a bit of ponder in us. Am I off the mark by saying that? I think I'm a red cully. <laughs> oh, really? Um, I do like going into a meeting with a sense of like, look, this is a chance for us to like throw some things around and see what sticks, which I think is a real Rid Cully uh, attitude. Like literally, I feel like his office is full of things he's thrown around to see what sticks on the wall. Um, but that kind of like good natured, you know, this is the space we've been invited to. So let's just, uh, you know, why not enjoy it and have a biscuit while we're here? Yeah, I don't dislike his attitude towards the meeting at all. He barely says no to anything, and then the things he does, he says in a funny way. So <laughs> That's true. That's true. I think I would like to be both a Ponder and a Rid Cully merged, but um, neither of you have actually had the misfortune of being in a meeting that I am running, and I run it like, a, like an aggressive military operation. Like... <laughs> generally I'm like, we're getting this done. We're not doing any tangents. Here's what's happening. We're not having a nice time. Laughs happen afterwards. We've done the thing. Goodbye. Now the chats are happening. So that's not something I love about my personality, but I also like to get the thing, the boring thing done and then have a nice time. Does that mean you're the AE Passamore, Liz? Oh my God. So yes, now you both know an AE Passamore. <laughs> and that answers part two. <laughs> Yeah. This is only if I'm running the meeting. If I'm in the meeting, you can't do, you can't do that unless you're the one in charge because that's rude, right? Hmm. Okay. Well, I have a lot of questions about our meetings that we have for this podcast, but we can, we'll talk about those afterwards. That's not really on the agenda. <laughs> no, it's more like if there's like a, a time sensitive thing that you need to get done. It, yeah. I'm, I make it sound like I come in and I'm like, everyone have a terrible time, sit on the floor until I, like, there's not, it's not like that, but it's more like, okay, quickly, quick, let's get the things done. And then, then we can all go out and have a drink or a meal. Are you saying it's not a terrible time because you allow people to have a chair, Liz? Is that your benchmark? Yeah, that's the main thing. Benchmark, literally. It has to be a hard one, so they're focused. No comfort chairs. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. Look, I feel I feel like I I do identify most strongly with Ponder because in most meetings I am not in charge. I don't really get to decide how things are done, but I do kind of have an idea of how I think they should be done, but I can't usually persuade anyone to do it. Certainly in meetings of big organizations that I've been involved in, that has often been the role that I feel that I've had. So yes, I think I think I agree with you, Malkov. I'm I am mostly ponder. 
horrified to learn that apparently I'm a pessimal, but um, <laughs> I will take that. Look, with the larger, um, like, pessimal doesn't do anything bad in Thud. Pessimal's just no. doing their job and asking quite reasonable questions that we all agreed, like, yes, please apply these to a police force. Yeah. And, um, you know, while it's fantastic, Pesimal found out that they had some untapped berserker rage and they can <laughs> apply that to the benefits of a citizenry. I don't think that discounts what a Pesimal brings to these sorts of bureaucratic situations. And so for all the Pesimals out there, Liz included, I, I'm grateful <laughs> for what they bring. Yeah, absolutely. Even if I it's mean, berserker rage. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's what you need, particularly in a committee meeting. Um, but I think. People start moving comfy chairs. You have to bring it up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but look, to answer the second part of that question, are they annoying, useful, or a bit of both? I think they're mostly useful. And if at all, a bit, a bit annoying. It's a bit of both. <laughs> okay. Because if it wasn't annoying, then it wouldn't be a peevish character, would it? Well, all right. Yeah, fair enough. But I think, I do think, and I- we, we actually, It doesn't peeve me. No. And I, th- I, I actually felt that Vimes gives him a really, like- uncalled for rough time like he's he's just like because he's just reacting he's just like someone's coming in here telling me my business i'm gonna treat him like dirt you're like no mate you need some oversight (laughs) if anything this the things that you're doing in this book show you need some oversight you need someone to look at what you're doing and make sure that you're doing it right you think your oversight is the only oversight you need but of course you would think that you're you (laughs) um and that's not how it works so i i felt very much that Pesmore was hard done by. Um, and even Vimes, like, you know, starts to regret how he's treated him during that scene where he parades him in front of the other special constables. You know, you could see him going, oh, you don't really have to be out here. And he's like, no, I shall do it. You're like, okay, all right. And that was before he went the full berserk, I guess. <laughs> just bite a troll. Just yeah. Normal things. Troll bite. What a good name. Troll biter. That's, that's a good, good deed name. Well done. That's probably his MSN name. <laughs> probably. Probably. I mean, you can change your MSN name. It's fine. Um, the next question comes from Avril via Discord. Do we think the university will successfully hold off veterinarians' desire for it to be dragged kicking and screaming into the century of the fruit bat? Forming a committee as a delaying tactic is a time-honored tradition, but would the patrician accept it? I think we chatted about this. I don't think the patrician expects much to come from this. I think this is one of the ones where... Going through the act or the motions does the job that's needed, which is a reminder to everybody that there are a certain way that things need to be done. Hmm. And, you know, he's dragged in Ridcully for a meeting or pleasantly invited him to a meeting with the idea that if he doesn't show up, there'll be trouble uh, before and kind of gets his way with it anyway. I don't, yeah, I think this is a nice reminder. Yeah, I yeah. tend to agree. Yeah. I, th- I think the next time he needs them to do something. The thought that, oh, yeah, we haven't reported on that thing yet. If he chases that up, he's kind of got the upper hand now. I think that's enough. I, I'd agree with that. Yeah, mm. six steps ahead in chess, never about what the actual thing is we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. All right. For the next two questions, Ben, are you happy to read them? Because there's a bit of a, a voice acting element involved. <laughs> and um, I have this voice and I use it for everything. <laughs> that's all right. Liz, which Discworld characters do you feel comfortable lending your voice to? Maybe Death. Okay. Um, perhaps okay. Vimes. Okay. Maybe Susan. Death of Rats? No, no, no. Uh, 
Maybe, depending on the day. The mood (laughs) strikes me. Okay. That seems reasonable. Good question, though. I'm going to think about that. Yes. Well, look, this is from Joel Mullen via Discord, this question. It's certainly written in a character. I suspect as Pesimal, but maybe just Joel feels like he fits right into the Discworld. I don't know. But anyway, I'll I'll do my best to read it. Or do you want me to do it because I have, I have just noticed it is as pessimal and if, if that's oh yeah who I no, am I think you should do, do it to give it a red hot go get your range Liz show us what you got yeah this give it a go you've, you've seen what I've got your graces I hope you will not mind as soon as possible giving me the answers to the following questions one what is Rincewind for why are you employing a known petty coward two. I timed several wizards digging up a broad way earlier, and in the span of one hour, they cast no spells. Why was this an economic use of their time? Three, the level of violence used by your wizards against wizards seems excessive. Can you please comment upon this? <laughs> Joel, this is this is brilliant. I love this question. Thank you, Liz, too. That was brilliant. That was great. Thank you, Joel. Um what is Rincewind for? I mean, we know we know what he did. As we know from the Science of Discworld books, he kind of accumulates titles um, that nobody else wants. He ends up with uh, something like 20 titles by the time of the Science of Discworld 3. It's very silly. But why Why do you think they really keep him around? Like, they could they could expel him or fire him, I guess, now that he's an employee. They don't seem to really pay him much apart from feeding and housing him. Isn't it as a coward we know that he's a survivor? Because it gets to a point where the university starts applying him to situations where, you know, there's a very slim chance that anyone could actually survive it. <laughs> so you may as well throw this constant survivor at them. He's expendable also in that sense, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. That's certainly why they're quite happy to send him to the counterweight continent. Uh, and it's certainly why they send him into Round World uh, during the first Science of Discworld book. And he has proved himself quite useful, like particularly, and I keep talking about Science Discworld books here, but they really are the main books where you see him as part of the faculty. And in particularly the, the second and third one, and to a lesser extent, the first one, I feel like he really is important in those books. Like they, he really knows what's going on in a way that the other wizards just don't. I think he's important from our viewpoint and, and he is actually important. I still don't think they see him that way. I suspect mm. that. Quite simply in terms of why he's kept on at Unseen University is it's inconvenient to fire him or no one has noticed that he's there is possibly why he is still around. Mm. Um, also, he's good at translating, so he's probably useful for that because of all his languages. That's true. I also think there's that Ridcully is so blunt that people mistake him for being stupid, but I think he understands the kind of real-world knowledge that Rincewind brings to a situation. If you've mm. got someone who's literally called the chair and hasn't moved from the room for, um, you know, I'm guessing like three and a half decades, Mm. then I think it is sometimes helpful to have someone in a conversation who can speak to what it is like outside the walls of you, you. Yep. Mm. Um, I think describing as a known petty coward is a bit rough. I mean, the patrician has seen him in action in uh, the last hero, more or less invites him on the, on the mission he doesn't wish to volunteer, but he is volunteering because he knows if he doesn't volunteer, he'll end up on it anyway. Like he's also, I mean, his genre savviness is also off the charts. He he really knows, although not like Granny Weatherwax who can see stories, even if she's not necessarily part of them, he always knows kind of what role he's destined to play 
and he doesn't like it, but he's aware of it. He knows he's got to be the underdog of the university. He's got to be the one who actually gets the, the shitty jobs that no one else wants. And if they find him, they'd have to, you know, find people for those 20 titles that he's ended up with. Who's the wizard who is who knows a lot about stories? I'm trying to remember which book that's from. Oh, yeah, there is one, isn't there? I don't remember who that is. We'll have to look that up. Is it the one going postal? Sorry, there is a wizard who is fantastic at knowing stories and narrative and that. And I feel like that is the wizard who answered that question in Pezimal's report. Uh-huh. We went so meta in what Rincewind is for that only a wizard who sees things through the lens of narrative would be able to answer it just like that. Okay. And he get a whole new title for doing this, probably. <laughs> Almost certainly. What about question number two? Uh, a time several wizards doing up Broadway. And they cast no spells. Now, I think this might be a reference to when they were burying, what's his name? The really old wizard who dies Winder at the start of Reaper Poons. Wendell Poons, yeah. I think this is this is a reference to when they bury him at the crossroad of uh, Broadway and another street uh, because they're trying to make him die properly. <laughs> but they did it without magic. Surely the answer would be that, um, yes, you could dig up a road faster using magic, but to patch up all the fallout from using that magic would take much longer, and thus just doing it without magic is overall a more economic use of their time. Yeah. Also, you know, get out there, wield a shovel, old man. Get some <laughs> air into the windbags. also i can see like ponder would probably like answer this with mathematics he's like look in order to shift uh 13 cubic feet of the earth you would have to displace 13 cubic feet of similarly dense matter and and, you know he'd explain it in scientific terms which they'd be like the irony of using up so much more wizard time to answer this question (laughs) now that feels very you you yeah Yep. Yeah, get every single one of them to file their own individual report specialized in their area on why that would be mm. beautiful. Now, what about what about the wizard on wizard violence uh, referred to in this question? I mean, I feel like this is a throwback more to the early days of Unseen University. You don't see much of this in the modern UU. Simple. I disagree with the premise. It isn't excessive. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> well, what's the alternative? Wizard on civilian violence? Hmm. It has to go suggest- somewhere. Yeah. Uh, does it? Yeah, well, there's, it's like how matter it can neither be created nor destroyed. There's a finite amount of wizard violence and it has to be used. Okay, could they use it on inanimate objects? What, blowing up streets and such? I don't think that's very good for the community, is it? Okay. I don't know what this voice is, but it's happening. <laughs> Uh, all right, I don't want to ask that voice any more questions. Character work there, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> the inner pessimals yes, coming out, yeah, or, or possibly yeah. In a, yeah. someone else. Air of indefinite characters. Mm. Just <laughs> new, new avenues for me. No. Uh, <laughs> all right, we'll blow up that street. Long for you. <laughs> this last one's also very well written. Thank you to Steve Lay who wrote this on Twitter, not in the voice of a specific, well, it does have the voice of a specific character in it, but I feel like, Steve, you you really put some effort into trying to write in the Pratchett style, and I really enjoyed this. Liz, do you want to read this one out? I absolutely do not. (laughs) Okay. I'd love it if you would, because I just do not feel I'd do it justice. I can do a veterinary if we're digging around. Oh, yeah. Please, please do. Please do, man. All right. Veterinary Peter drummed not thoughtfully. 
"What if?" he said slowly. We cut all grants to the university and the guilds, and make them compete for scraps of a much smaller total sum. I'm sure Mr. Von Lipwig would be amenable to setting up a Ankhmore Pork Research Council. <laughs> That was very good. That was very good. Yes, very Thank good. You very much. Oh, pleasure! And then Steve, who wrote the question, follows it up by saying, "Yes, it's not a question, but am I alone in seeing where this was headed?" I'd read the hell out of that book. <laughs> it would be would be an interesting book. I do you think that is where it would head? I mean, we've already discussed that the university is not funded by the city, so the equivalent to taking away their funding is making them pay taxes. Would that work for the other guilds? Because I mean, they also are not funded by the city; they're funded by their own activities. But they presumably do pay taxes. Like it seems like only the university is exempt from tax, because at several points during the books, the patrician does hold, you know, whether or not they've paid the correct amount of tax over them. It seems, but I mean, you could do this though. You can make them compete in some other way for sure. So things we know is that veterinary like hates a monopoly. And hates when something stymies progress. So I was thinking, is it possible that with these kind of slightly new emergence of different universities, that he sees this as a natural evolution? That kind of like、um, a variety of educational options should be allowed and given. And if the university is, you know, going to be a real stick in the mud about that process, then it might be time to lean in. With a little bit of bureaucracy as a weapon of、uh, mass annoyance, <laughs> and just see how that stirs things around. Yeah, and as always, you know, popping moist as the、uh, the arrowhead on that weapon, because he can、yeah. sell it in a way that makes it work. Also, yeah, I mean, because some of the guilds are the traditional kind of educational organizations, like we know about the Assassin School, but we also know that Jeremy Clarkson was brought up through the Clockmakers Guild. There's a school attached to the Fools Guild. There's a school attached to the Musicians Guild. So yeah, you could do it with the other guilds, or you could just do it, yeah, as you say, with the other magical schools that are clearly coming. Yeah, it could happen.、Mm. I would also really enjoy a series of short stories, just of the different grant applications written by specific characters, just to see how they approach some of the really mundane, tedious questions. I think that would be a really interesting character study, and also just good. Humor potential, because、mm. like Moist would absolutely know how to write a grant. Like he would figure out how to do it in all the right ways. But just like Nanny Og throwing her hat in the ring, being like, "You didn't say that we weren't eligible." So it's just, <laughs> I think it'd be there's, there's just some great potential there for a few little little things. Yeah, like、uh, references and reportabilities would be like our Jason. That so just you just shot that at the bottom of it. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> our Jason and add a stretch, our Sean. That'd be great. I feel like that would be a bum to solve for all of us who have ever had to write a grant application to, to try and do anything. Yes, they're a cruel and unusual punishment.、Mm. Look, I think that brings us to the end of our discussion of a collegiate casting out. Unless there's any last thoughts we've got about that story before we revisit the world of Thud. Just one final thought is what. I wasn't ready to feel so seen and attacked in in a short story, isn't? Because it was just so accurate. It was just so well done. So yeah, and I stick by what we said earlier, where it does feel like just a normal committee meeting, one of his like Society of Author ones with the names swapped out.、Mm. 
we want to revisit Thud because we had so many good questions and we just didn't get to that many of them. I think the main thing for me, before we get onto the specific questions, that I would have loved to spend some more time talking about is what it says about policing. Because by this time, Matt, you mentioned this, it really feels like Vimes has become the establishment. Whereas in the previous books, he's always, you know, sort of the working class underdog who's done done good. Like he's, you know, coming to this money and position, but he's using it to fight on behalf of the ordinary people. Thud is like the book where it really feels he's not in that position anymore as much as he might want to think he is. He's the fuzz. He's the man, to use the phrase. That puts a lot of what he does, particularly with a modern understanding of policing and, and the problems therein, in kind of a different light. I know this is ground that we sort of covered in The Fifth Elephant. Uh, I talked a lot of, in that episode about the bit at the end where he tricks Wolfgang into blowing himself up and kills him, but does it by the book so that it's okay and he can walk away with clean hands. And I found that a bit off-putting, even though, you know, he was a literal monster. But that's such a rarity in Pratchett's writing that he makes someone a literal monster who must actually be destroyed. It's usually much gentler than that. Like, even if you look at someone like the Count de Magpire in Kappa Yagulum, I mean, he gets killed at the end, but he gets killed as a vampire. We know he'll come back in, like, a century and hopefully have learned his lesson. And he doesn't kill off a lot of his villains. Or if he does, you know- Yeah, he's not Disney. Well, he does do it in a Disney way sometimes, but not quite the same way. There's quite a few which are, like, twists of fate. I'm thinking of um, the hitmen in The Truth- where mm. they get melted upon or smelted, I guess. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and they still get the ending that they deserve. Yeah. Like, because, yeah. like, one of them is actually genuinely, like, in his core, re- redeemable, and the other one isn't. So it's still, like, within their control. Or the thugs in Hogfather. Like, I think that's really an oh. interesting look at how different people meet their deaths and, again, like, what is deserved in death. There is a lot of, like, characters dying and, and baddies dying, I guess, but. You're right. It's not usually by the execution of the hero's hand. Yeah. And it was, an, it was a circumstance where it felt he's going to do this to himself, but only because I've engineered it so. The reason I wanted to bring this up was because one of the questions we didn't get to from Zoe via Discord about Thud is that she finds it's harder and harder for her to reread the Vimes books without thinking about the police structure and Vimes' absolute disregard for some basic policing rules. And she directly asked, you know, I don't think that Pratchett meant it this way, but are these books copaganda? You know, the, the modern, it's probably not that modern. I, I don't know how long it's been around, but, you know, the portmanteau for cop propaganda. Vintage Sewing um, says that if it's in the last 30 years, then it's modern. Okay. Well, there you go. It probably is uh, modern then. But, you know, this idea that all these TV shows that we've seen over the last few decades, which are all about, you know, cops like solving crimes and saving people, which have always shown cops in a very good light and until relatively recently there haven't been a lot that have really seriously dealt with corruption and systemic problems in police forces because they wanted to have a simple good guys versus bad guys narrative of cops and robbers that have taught us that's what we should think about cops when we know that's not the practical reality for a lot of people. So what do you think about this? How does particularly Thud but all of those watch books come across as a whole? I feel that there's a couple of things which don't make Vimes' actions read as, uh, they don't stick out in the same way they do in Thud for me. One is that we see the modernization of the city kind of at the same time as the books progress. So the Ankh-Morpork of Guards, Guards and Men at Arms is really different to the Ankh-Morpork of Thud. You know, things like cultural awareness and sensitivity and acceptance are introduced in a timeline that we're a part of. 
And Vimes's attitudes don't stick out as um, old-fashioned or insulting or contemptible in those early books because he, he is a product of that space. And mm. it's kind of he doesn't modernise at the same time as the city does. And I think that's really interesting that because that's obviously not Pratchett's thinking, He except that he created a purposely backwards-thinking space in those early books and then allowed it to modernise to a point where certain characters just sat within it awkwardly because of their philosophies. Hmm. Yeah, I think Vimes can't evolve. He can only soften, if that makes sense. So as we see in things like Nightwatch, you see him being shaped into the kind of policeman he is, one that in the context of the watch at that time has morals and ethics and a sense of the greater good, and that sort of solidifies into a very specific person who then moves through the ranks and is hard and he can't really cope with the world. That's why he has all his drinking and all of those issues. He meets Sybil and he softens. He has young Sam and he softens. But I think the core of who he is and the core of what he thinks policing is, is too set to change in pace with the society around him. And that doesn't necessarily make him bad, but it means that as things progress, it's going to not go at the same trajectory. So if these books had continued, we'd have continued to see Sam at a specific spot and the watch, and maybe people like Carrot, changing more with it. Hmm. Yeah, Carrot always seems excited about what modern times are bringing to things. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's just different, different attitudes, different personality types. And it is that thing of, you know, we we did talk about it in that other episode, but his two most psychologically developed characters of Vimes and Granny Weatherwax are like incredibly rigid people who are being forced to reconsider their ideas in a world. And and the question is whether or not you think that they are actually reconsidering it or just being forced to have obstacles. Mm. Yeah. I think they can become gentler, but their their underlying philosophy will not move. Yeah. And it's formed in response to a society that no longer exists in the same way. Yeah. I think there's a couple of interesting complications to how I've thought about this issue since we last kind of visited it in, in Fifth Elephant. I think one of them is Nightwatch. When Vimes goes back that 30 years, a lot of the things that we think of as being quite a part of the modern policing of the watch are in place. Like they have paperwork, they have expectations about chain of custody, evidence, and it's not shown that that police force is- you know, that the guards then, as opposed to how they're portrayed in guards, guards, it's not shown that they're radically different. Like the atmosphere is different. And there's this whole other branch, which is clearly, you know, the worst of the police, like as an extension of the state doing violence on behalf of the state. And then Vimes is sort of this antidote to that where he says, no, we're going to be for the people to the point where, you know, they are helping an insurrection against the government because that's what is going to protect the people, not, you know, doing what the government says. And that's kind of an interesting thing. But at the same time, you know, there's not that evolution anymore. Like it shows the this continuation of the watch. But I think the other thing, and, and I think I have said this in previous episodes that really I always come back to is it's not the same coming from an English author or from an English perception of policing because the TV image and indeed the real life image and reality, hopefully, although we know it still has problems in the UK, but the police force in the UK is different. Like, we haven't seen this massive militarization. They are supposed to be trained to de-escalate situations rather than shoot people. 
putting people in handcuffs is not a first option for British police training, at least. And of course, there are systemic issues of racism and sexism and everything else in, in British police culture, I'm sure, as there are in Australian police culture and around the world. But it's not quite the same. And certainly when you see the way that English policing is portrayed in popular culture, when you look at something like the bill, that's a real different idea of what police means than something like CSI or Law and Order SVU or something like that. They're absolutely same worlds apart. Like you can't, can you imagine like a policeman from the bill talking to a policeman from CSI? Like what that conversation would be like, what would they talk about? Yeah. It's difficult. I mean, you just, and you see it sometimes in fiction. You know, I always think of Rivers of London, which is also a series that could be questioned in terms of propaganda. And I think it's sort of directly, it deals with it more head on. I mean, for starters, if you haven't read them, they are urban fantasy. So they're set in kind of a realistic modern day London. And they do directly address some systemic issues. And it has a quite a diverse cast of, of characters too, which helps. But that could also be argued that it shows the police in the best possible light. But I think, yeah, they they are very different. But then you could also say that the way in which the British police are portrayed, it makes them less like these. It, it's not that they're not portrayed in a positive light. It's that they're portrayed in a more down-to-earth, realistic, like they're just your local guy who's there to help you kind of thing, rather than the kind of action hero perspective you get from a lot of police narratives that come out of the US. And in Australia, we get much more, I think, closer to the UK idea when we have local police drama or stories. We don't even have, like, the only one I can think of is Blue Healers. And that's like, oh, yeah, so let's talk about this, like, these five police out at Mount Thomas Police Station mm. who are all married to each other or married to Julie from the pub. And it's, it's, it's a soap opera that where most of the cast happen to be police. Like, it's not really a police show. We did have, like, Police Rescue and Water Rats, I guess, in the 80s and 90s, which had a little bit more of that action-y feel to it, like uh, mm. characters, uh, Water Rats, I remember, just were constantly jumping off their boat, uh, like, as yeah. if before it had dipped off properly. Like some was... kind of water rat. <laughs> now, now I'm seeing it, Liz. Oh, uh, that makes sense. <laughs> Who famously have boats, like the animals that are rats. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, rats always messing about in boats. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen Wind in the Willows. Yeah, it, it, I totally agree with you, Ben, that, like, the pop culture way that, you know, the the um, Edgar Wright film Hot Fuzz is really sending that up where you've got what if we applied American blockbuster ideas of policing to yeah. <laughs> what most policing is in England, which is small-town village style. You know ev- absolutely everybody and you just walk around saying hi to them each day. Yeah. A heartbeat. Oh, my God. It's always green grass. We'll never get in for anything. <laughs> Yeah, so I watched Heartbeat I mean, religiously as a child, so I assume that everyone just understands my reference. Oh, yeah. No, I totally, I understand. Um, but look, I think, you know, to flip that on its head a little, I think there is an element of the police are never shown to be the bad guys. Like, there's not, you don't even really get corrupt police officers except in the past of the Nightwatch. Bill you did. Well, I mean, no, you do in the bill. I mean, in, in the Pratchett books. Like, okay. there's, they're very few and far between. And where they are, they're like, you know, they're villains who get kicked out. So, it's always the... You know, the police are, are sorting it out and you never really see them from the other side, except maybe in the truth where, you know, the press is trying to do its job and the police are like, don't mess with this. <laughs> so I guess where I end up is I wouldn't think of them as propaganda, but I do think that by contributing to the sort of larger pop culture narrative of 
cops are the good guys, they don't counter that. But all of the books are kind of like, it depends on where you're standing, right? Like in some of the books, as you point out, the police are the bad guys getting in the way of the journalists. And in some of the books, the journalists are the bad guys getting in the way of the police doing their jobs. So like, he doesn't seem to have qualms about flipping who who seems to suck depending on who's looking at them. Mm. But the police that we see are either very understandable, like they're not... Mm. It, Vimes has that thing where he's like, I'm allowed to be prejudiced because I'm prejudiced against everyone because I live in Ankh-Morpork and I've come up from the gutter and I will treat everyone awfully <laughs> if I have to. No, I think to- st- your point still stands. Um, but yeah, it wasn't just that really small thing about flipping perspective. Oh, yeah. Okay. But no, the underlying thing is still like it's overwhelmingly positive. Yeah. So I think that's as close as it comes, but I don't think it, it doesn't necessarily paper over the issues as much. And I think that Yet, certainly, from what we know, Pratchett's understanding of policing heavily influenced by um, his mate Bernard, the cunning artificer who used to be a a police officer. If I remember this rightly, I will check this for the episode notes. And so, he would have had all these, like, stories of, like, a small-town Bobby, you know, like a police officer in a small town in the UK, exactly like we were talking about in Heartbeat. And that's what he thinks policing is. So, it's not really a surprise that that's what most of his books are like. And it's only occasionally- like in Nightwatch, where there's the thing where they pretend to torture people and that's seen as being better than actually torturing them, even though somebody really believes they're going to be tortured, which you could argue is a form of psychological torture. There's little moments like that where it's like someone being clever, but not necessarily understanding that they're still doing great harm. But I think that's Pratchett not understanding it rather than trying to present it. You know, I mean, in Nightwatch, he's, he's pretend torturing a torturer. Like the gag in that book mm. is that- I can say some words which make you think of torture because you know what those words are meaning. Whereas in Thud, they are applying these tactics to a group of people who are just saying that we have laws which are different to your laws, even though we live within the same city limits. And I think that is where it's the real sticking point. Yeah. Which is a great segue into Zoe's other question, which was in these later books, she feels like, particularly the later Vimes books, Pratchett's putting away the satire and the parody and it's about something. And Thud, she feels at its core, is about religious extremism, which I think tracks. I mean, I think that's that's where the deep down dwarfs are shown as coming from. And she asks, given the situation in Iran and the United States currently regarding women's bodies and also plenty of other things, is there a specific lesson we should be drawing from Thud about religious extremism? Sometimes I think Pratchett has these big themes that come up. And he talks about them and he kind of points at something and goes, see, this is bad. But it's not always so easy to see what specific thing he's trying to say. And I think in the case of the Deep Down of Dwarves, I think this is a good question. It's like, okay, well, religious extremism is bad, but what's the answer? Do we find a nice person in the religion? What if there isn't one? Or who decides who the nice person is? Where does that... Because as Avril talked about, you know, what's he trying to say about who Bashful Bashful Son is? you know, as the one nice person in this sort of extreme part of the dwarf religion, even though they say it's not a religion. I don't think I can answer this question because I don't agree that it, it's about religious extremism. I think it's just about extremism overall. So I don't think I can engage with this question in the spirit in which it was asked, even though I think it's a great question. Okay. I think that what... Pratchett is interested in doing in some of these books, the books which are a little bit more, you know, that they're not a straight parody or satire. They're a little bit more heady and conceptual in let's think about a real 
gritty conflict point within societies that we live in is that a lot of the time he's just bringing in complexity and differing points of view. And then within that sits a narrative. And I sometimes think, you know, you can follow the narrative and decide whether or not that's satisfying. And he's just using the context of this gritty social space, gritty as in crunchy and complex, not gritty as in uh, remaking Batman for the seventh time. Sure. (laughs) With the lights turned off. Yeah. With Superman dead. So when it's like, what can you take away from it? I think what I take away from his work and what I did in the earlier books and what I did when I was younger was just kind of like, things are more complex. There are more perspectives that you have to think of things in a couple of ways at once that you can't apply one set of rules to every situation. And just when you think you've locked on to like a rule with which to live your life, you will most likely bump into a person which makes you have to adjust those sets of rules. And, you know, in the best way, that's that's what like a character like Vimes has been doing up to Thud is constantly having to just slightly reassess the boundaries that they've set for themselves and then include more and more and more into that. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. I think for me, like my answer is probably slightly disappointing <laughs> as an answer as well. Uh, not as I as well. Like, I don't think your answer is disappointing. No, but my my I answer think- is disappointing. I, I will own that. It's just a, <laughs> a disappointing non-answer. I think he's also like, Someone tries to steal your baby, it's good if they get poisoned to death. Like, you know, I don't think there's like a strong lesson out of thought like that. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Is it about religious extremism? I think it's certainly that religious extremism exists in the book. I don't think you see extremism really from anybody else apart from the religious sort of group that you see in the book. So I'd agree that it is about that. But I think this is a case of Pratchett sort of saying, this thing is dangerous and I have thoughts about it. I don't necessarily have any answers, so I'm going to write a story where we see how this is bad. And I think that's about it. So I don't think he really intends that there's a specific lesson to draw. And I think that's usually the case in most of his books. Like, this is kind of agreeing with you, Matt. Like, I don't think he he goes in and says, I want people to learn this. I think he goes in saying, you know, I'm trying to figure out what I think about this too. And, you know, we mentioned, I think, when we were talking about Thud, this is written in the years after 9-11. And it was on everybody's mind in one way or another. You know, how much of this is real? How do we distinguish talking about what is clearly a problem from the political causes of that problem and the broader ideas of religion and everything? And it's, it is like, particularly if you'd never thought about it much before that time, which a lot of us had not, it is difficult. And I think maybe that writing this book was his way of kind of thinking, well, what is the difference between Two people who believe the same thing, but some of them are willing to go to great lengths to protect that belief or enforce that belief, and others are willing to bend with the times and other people. And what is the difference between those people and what are they like? And I don't necessarily know that he comes up with any answers about those things, but I think him writing this was part of him thinking about it and working it out for himself, maybe. Yeah, in some ways the book kind of replicates what the world was like at that time when it felt like you were meeting an immovable, what's what's the saying, a movable oh, object uh, with a something. Yeah, an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. And in that you've got this extremism and you've got Vimes, who is, we've discussed, incredibly rigid in his beliefs, clashing. And that was what lots of political, social situations and spaces felt like at that time. And whenever fear pops up often it feels like those two sides meet up again but if i'm advocating for that idea that pratchett is just like let's allow for complexity 
this is a book where you have two sides of an issue who are not allowing for that, who are both saying, no, it's it's my way or the highway. And that's what that friction is. And, mm-hmm. and then it's almost like, do you get a satisfying narrative over that except for hopefully both sides to say, I, I have to think more or I have to look a bit harder or be a bit more generous? I don't know. Mm. Do you think Vimes gets to that point by the end of the book, though? No. No. This is kind of what you were saying, Liz, is that he has not changed. No, he has a core view of the world and what a policeman should be, and I think that stays irrespective of the world around him. Look, I think I know I'm sort of taking a new usual role here, Liz, by picking the questions, but I'm trying to pick ones that sort of mm-hmm. uh, segue in. And I want to do another one that's maybe a little bit serious before we get onto some of the fun ones, because there were some good fun ones as well. But um, Avril was also asking about how does Pratchett mean us to see Bashful Bashfulson? Is he an example of what Pratchett saw as a good, in inverted commas, religious person? And what's with his definition of religion anyway, <laughs> where he says it's not a religion? And uh, she talks about how, you know, he explains that Tack wrote the world and the laws and then he left us. He doesn't really care what we think of him, which led to, and I'm just going to throw this in there. And we won't talk about this in too much detail because we just don't have the time. But Zoe had this great thing where she talked about the fact that the way that Bashfulson talks about dwarven religion is that it's an orthopraxy, not an orthodoxy, which means it's not about what you believe. It's about what you actually do. It's about doing the things, not in whether you believe for in a particular reason for doing them. So, I thought that was really also interesting an angle. But what do we think of Bashfulson? How does he- We didn't talk about him loads in the previous episode. I don't feel he is a- He's not a character that stuck with me after the book. Mm. I think he's a character that does a lot of work in the novel, but I, I don't know, like, you know, it's not really the point of this podcast, but he's not a very fully fleshed out character. I don't I don't know much about him other than how he responds to what Vimes offers him. You know, and I think it's cool that he goes to the games club and plays uh, Thud and knows Kung Fu. But uh, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) he's he's a little bit of a cipher or enigma to me. He Mm. absolutely did not stick with me. I definitely was not just looking him up right then. So, um, why? Well, here's my question though, in response to that. Why do you think Pratchett thought he needed this character? Why didn't he use, say, Cheery or Carrot? as someone who knew all the dwarf lore that was necessary but wasn't one of these very extremist deep downers, why did he need to invent this sort of nice, friendly Greg character instead? I think if you're introducing a bunch of, like, intense, hard-to-like ones, you can't rely on the ones you've already got to balance that out because mm-hmm. they're sort of part of the wallpaper by then, like, cheery as much as we love her. Like, she great but i don't think she would balance it out that's why you need a new character who shows another side of things so Mm. in terms of the narrative i think that's possibly why this character was introduced in terms of balance yeah okay that makes sense i don't know if uh if pratchett sees him as an example what a good religious person should be i mean i think I think we see many examples of what a good religious person is in the books, and they're not all the same. I mean, you know, Bashfulson is not the same as Brother. He's not the same as um, Mightily Oats. I mean, and those are the main examples that spring to mind. He's not the same as um, a Ridcully's brother, uh, whose name currently eludes me. Handily, it's also Ridcully. It is, yes, that is handy. <laughs> but I think, you know, aside from the science of Discworld books, the Discworld novels uh you know they they poke fun at organized religion and the institutions of religion but they don't poke fun at religious belief so much 
And it's not the religious beliefs that are the problem in this book as much as it is the extremism, as you were kind of saying, I think, Liz. I think he pokes fun at all, all tradition that is a little bit irrational, irrespective of the source of it. Yeah. I mean, the well, the Unseen University stuff is another example of that for sure. And we'll see that in an even more extreme way when we get to Unseen Academicals. Uh, but we've already seen it in a few of the books as well. Well, I always think of that, like, that key ceremony. I forget which book it's from, but the university one where they're handing over the keys and it's a whole thing and they don't know why oh, they yeah. do it. And it's it's just, yeah. Yeah. And is that in Hogfather? I think, no, maybe not. It's in one of them, though. Yeah, I know the one you mean. Look, let's get, we'll get a couple more of these in before we, before we close up. We're not going to get to, again, we're not going to get to all your questions. There's so many, so many good ones, but yeah, only a little bit of time. There's so many good ones. I do want to just quickly give an answer that I found to one more question of Avril's, which was, do we know if Pratchett read Agatha Christie because Otto Shriek's way of ensuring people are comfortable with him as a vampire reads exactly like a thing that Hercule Poirot says? He's at least familiar with Agatha Christie because he's talked about her in a couple of things. And I found an interview in which he's talking a bit dismissively about Agatha Christie. I'll put a link to that in the episode notes. But he's definitely familiar with her work, whether or not he was a big fan. I don't fan. know if I want to read that then because, you know, it's my two two people coming up it, against each other. Look, it's pretty brief aside, Liz. I think you'll understand his dismissal and you can poo-poo it as going, but it's so good. <laughs> and I think that's fine. <laughs> I think but that's she poo pooed her own work all the time as well. She's like, huh, oh. like, even within her book, she'd be like, huh, oh. she has one character noticing that the other author characters' books have the same plot with different characters, <laughs> which is something she has done. But yeah, if you yeah. pump out that many books, it's going to happen. The last serious thing I'll just pop in here is Avril did also say, you know, it's been 17 years since that was published. Do we think about things differently if we're reading it in 2022? Stuff like the racist hazing that the coppers do and we just sort of go, okay, yeah, that's, you know, you hold your own and everything's fine. Or, um, you know, the way that they talk about affirmative action and stuff like that in the book. Yeah. Is it, is there stuff that you read in this and you went, I don't think about this the same way as I did when I first read it? Yes, absolutely. I think when I first read it, and we talked about this in the last episode, I found it a an unsatisfying narrative and kind of a tone that just didn't in make me want to come back. Our discussion actually made me think about it in a much kind of deeper and more interesting way. But I, that actually makes me think that I'm giving more benefit of the doubt to Pratchett to say, yeah, you try, you wrote a complicated book that isn't a wrapped up satisfying present to me in the same way that a lot of his books are. Mm. And that's the kind of entertainment that I like to have now. I like, you know, compared to 15-year-old me reading this for the first time, I like books and movies and other things that aren't quite as easy to wrap my head around. I guess that's a little bit of a contrast from what the question actually is, where, yes, there are acts that people do in them that I think about differently, but I now maybe think that the book is quite knowing of what those acts are and how they read in the context. Yeah, and I agree with that. I think even things like, not even within this book, things from five years ago read weirdly to me now because society has shifted so much. But to draw specifically on Thud, the way that I probably, when I first read this book, would have seen things like how people treated Nobby about his girlfriend, Tawny, I'd have been like, mm. haha, that's very funny. And like, that's just what they're doing. But it's actually just kind of horrible how everyone just makes all these assumptions about their dynamic, her job. The way everyone treats her, it's, it's just all, and even like the Sally Angular relationship, I think I would have seen in a very black and white way, whereas now there's just different 
you go from, well, I, I think I've gone from seeing this is the good character and this is the bad character or this is the one I'm rooting for and this is the one I'm not rooting for. Or, this is the one who's correct and this is the one who's incorrect. A lot of that has shifted into shades of grey or even swapped around. So, And I think that's, again, the beauty of a complex book, that it's not just laid out in a clear way that doesn't change. Yeah. I mean, I think I have a pretty similar experience to Avril in my first thoughts, if I can borrow a Pratchett phrase. When I reread the books now, a lot of the time I go, oh, you wouldn't write that quite that way now necessarily. But then, you know, as you get deeper into the story and a little more nuance comes out often, but not always, there's a second thought, which is like, oh, but, and there's a big difference too between reading something that is clearly an expression of a thought the author has and reading something which is a thought that the author is interrogating. And so I think most of the time when there's stuff in the book that I'm like, oh, it's usually becomes something that gets interrogated or kicked around and goes, is this a good way to think or is this a good way to behave? And sometimes there's stuff in there that is just here it is because in 2005 or 1984 or whatever year it was when he was writing, nobody thought twice about those sorts of things. So, yeah. I definitely think something like the phrasing of how Tawny is talked about um, Mm. is really interesting because I think I'm really fine with the characters to treat her badly because people treat people badly and these and these do not have to be perfect characters for me to continue to follow them from book to book but obviously there are moments and I think hearing the two of you talk about um how Pratchett describes a character like uh Agnes Knit where it is just it's it's just not necessary to continue to bring up especially like a female character's intelligence or physical appearance in the ways that he falls back on comedic crutches and comedic, I'm putting in inverted commas. Hmm. It's a really funny thing to go back and read those. We were like, you've set up terrible characters to have these perspectives on these characters. And yet you yourself are perpetuating the same thing in your narrative voice. Um, Hmm. I guess that, that always pops up. And uh, this, this book falls prey to that as well. Yeah. Yeah, so whether it's coming from the characters or whether it's coming from Pratchett, it matters. Yeah, that's a big difference too, yeah, whose voice it's in. Look, let's finish off with some of the fun questions that we got sent because there were quite a lot. We only got to touch on a few. A Chew and Sneezed on Twitter just had a massive thread, which is was so good, like it's worth reading on your own, and we will link to it in the episode notes. But there were a few other ones that he came up with that I think we would like to do. I know definitely the the first one that comes to mind for me is there's a great scene in this where they're in the cocktail bar and they're ordering all these ridiculous cocktails. <laughs> and it just seems wanted us to say, what kind of Discworld cocktails could we make up? While you're thinking, I'll read out the ones that he suggested. He came up with Veterinari's Nuts, which would be Frangelico and Amaretto based. If you ordered a Veterinari's Nuts, you should expect to wake up Upside down in that pit of spikes. <laughs> in the scorpion pit. <laughs> Bold of you to assume that I get to wake up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, would he know? I mean, he would know. But would he really do something about it? I feel like maybe he'd... I feel like, like he wouldn't tolerate veterinary's nuts because that chips away at his image as a serious guy. So he'd deal with mm. it, but in a way that he nips that in the bud. <laughs> well, who? if you were going to make this nut-based cocktail, who would you name it after on the Discworld then? It has to be veterinary's nuts, but I'm just saying that the person, like, you'd only get to drink it for a very limited time. Okay, sure. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and it's a particularly unhappy hour. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> okay. K double <laughs> and your life. I'll grant that. Um, I think, uh, the, the other ones that, uh, the Dame, uh, Chew and Sneeze came up with were, uh, the Nightwatch Ruin, which is a beer and a shot of beer huggers and clutching and coffee, which presumably cancel each other out. <laughs> so you drink it and you feel exactly the same afterwards. That's my commentary. I don't know if that was the intention there. And the Witch's Tit, which I think is actually a name of a cocktail in some places, I'm sure. But anyway, he says it's got apples in it. Well, mainly apples. <laughs> I feel like that is a name of a cocktail that would exist on the Discworld. Um, sure, yeah. that's a that's a scumble um, variety of drink. Oh yeah, obviously. yeah, for sure. Um, I've got a few that I oh, came yeah. up with. Yeah. Okay. Is. So number one, a rinse gin. <laughs> that is a like a gin and tonic style cocktail or uh-huh. just mixed drink served in a hollowed out potato. <laughs> Wonderful. And because. You know, this is the person who is constantly surviving by escaping their enemies. It has to come with a chaser. (laughs) (laughs) But like a really intense one, like a really strong alcohol. Yeah. Yep. All right. Um, We've got the banana dakarook (laughs) or the banana dakarook. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Only one bartender knows how to make it and... The ingredient, like the ingredient list, will never be explained outside of that, like relationship. <laughs> yes, a favorite of the creator of the Discworld as well. And if that bartender was busy, the one client who ordered it would just not even have to lean over the bar, but would be able to reach over and make the cocktail themselves. <laughs> Which bar do you think he goes to? Beers? No, he's a mended drum um, regular as oh, an unofficial watch. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Although there's a, there is a watch pub, which is not the Mended Drum, but he does show up in the Mended Drum several times. So I think you're right. He'd be a, a regular at the Mended Drum and no one would bother him. So I've got a couple more. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, troll Punch. <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> which is you just never wake up from. Yep. Yep. Because <laughs> it got slab, like sprinkled like around the edge of the glass. <laughs> like, you know how like, they do salt? <laughs> I think they just, they just yeah, crunch up the edge of the glass and you drink that. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> it's a one smashed glass turned into another glass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the last one is if um, music with rocks in it ever comes back to the disc, I think all the bands would be uh, encouraged to do a red shoey at the end of, <laughs> like, in the middle of their show. <laughs> we need to explain uh, a shoey because not all of our audience is Australian. So a shoey has bizarrely popped up as a kind of constant call out at Australian concerts and gigs where young people in the crowd will encourage the lead singer or the performer to scull a beer out of a shoe, usually a shoe from an audience member. It speaks to everything that uh, is uh, makes me roll my eyes at Australianisms. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I guess my take on a red shoey, though, is uh, depending on how hardcore the band is, is whether or not you fish out the spare toes that are at the bottom <laughs> of the shoe before you drink it. Uh, yes, absolutely. Oh, I don't think I could top any of those. Those are amazing, Matt. That's incredible. I want to make all of these except for the last one because that sounds like <laughs> my nightmares. I only had one, um, okay. and it is the Sybil Disobedience, and it's one that the, you only find it in the Vimes household, and it was created by accident. And what it is is a very expensive whiskey, like like – sort of like over 25 years old, very peaty, 
Um, because like Sybil seems like she'd just be into like a whiskey, like a snifter at the end of the night, perhaps. And Vimes was making her a drink and he accidentally poured some creme de cacao into it. You know, that like chocolatey one. Yeah. That, that, and somehow together it works. It doesn't quite make sense, but you know, there you go. And it's like, it's about both of them. So it's a civil disobedience. I love it. Mm. I love it. I love it. I want to drink most of those, but I won't. I might not survive. Um, <laughs> that was very. Oh, I can't stop thinking about like chewing toes through a beer. It's, uh... <laughs> now another one of Dane's questions, and we're not going to try and do all of yours, Dave, because you you had so many. But um, the other one that I really liked was uh, he said, "When I think about tertiary characters, A. E. Pessimal rarely registers, but he is actually quite a delight in this book. Do you have any characters who appear just once who you love?" In the Discworld books, I'm I'm assuming he means, or like just in the background, like because he, um, he lists Otto as a character, like as one of these, and Cassinanda. So like, just not not mains, but yeah, and particularly one offs. But yeah, we can extend it to to those sort of background characters as well. I mean, we talked about Otto being one of our faves uh, last time, and Cassinanda. Uh, but um, yeah, are there any are there any ones who just appear the one time though? And you never see them again, but they were great that one time. Um, I'm a big fan of maybe the um, flip side of the coin of Pesimal, which is Inigo Skimmer. Oh, yeah. The the clerk who is assigned to um, hang out with Vimes and then turns out to kind of be a dark clerk with a few extra skills besides um, bookkeeping and diplomacy. Yep. And I also love heaps of the villains. Like I think <laughs> Pratchett just writes phenomenal, excellent, creepy, weird, over-the-top, psychologically astute and exaggerated villains and you know they really have to come back yeah yeah more, more pin and tulip i I'd, I'd like that but um mine's yeah. not a fun one it's it's more like this is a character that i think about more than i feel like he was written about as the one that shows up at the seams just as wanting all his socks mended yeah. <laughs> the old guy he's, he's got yeah he's gotten a misunderstanding about what Seems just means and he literally wants someone to darn his socks because his wife has died and that's just so charming and sad and bittersweet and you only see him for a moment and he's there to just basically drive a pun about why they call themselves seamstresses but I just think that's just a beautiful character he's he's real like baby shoes for sale never never worn kind of character mm. yeah I think uh, I was thinking about this and I think for me it's often a group of characters. So I do like the sort of the central trio of Tepic and Chitta and Tracy in Pyramids, and we never see or hear from them again. And I, I, I would have totally gone for more of them, even in the background. Oh, the of the camel. Book. And the camel, yeah. Yeah. yeah the greatest bastard. mathematician in the world. Yeah, would have been great. <laughs> but I think the other one for Own me, book. the ones that are sort of very like secondary background characters, but who I really enjoyed, and I always kind of hope that they'd show up again, and I don't think they ever do, are the, um, the Klax crew. Princess and Grandad and the others, like who are like you know they work on the Klax towers and they know how it works, and then also the the smoking GNU as well, <laughs> like that bunch of like real nerds who who know how it works and they have the fanciers, yeah, and they have the mobile Klax tower stuff. I was like, they were great. I'd love to see them show up again. Like, surely there could have been some you know in inverted commas computer crime in a later book, but um, I don't think they ever returned. But I really enjoyed them. I think they'd be my faves. But there's, I mean, there's so many. There's always a couple in any given book. Even in Thud, like what's her name? The the woman in the in the gem shop. I thought she was great. I think about the God of Hangovers sometimes. From <laughs> yeah. 
or does he think about you? Well, we're both uh, wearing <laughs> as much of each other. So, <laughs> well, look, one last one, and look, this was incredibly difficult, even though we answered some of these last time to narrow this down. But we're going to finish off with this one with a bit of fun. Uh, Damien Smith on Twitter, who also said, "I got a big Coombe Valley as the friends we made along the way" vibe from this <laughs> book. Uh, but we won't ask. That, we won't answer that question because that was too hard. But we will answer your other question, Damien, which was. In the light of Brick and Mr. Shine, how else could you see trolls appearing? There's a big wide world of polymers out there <laughs> and other materials. What do we reckon? Like, and particularly as the disc world continues to evolve after the events of Thud, what kind of, you know, unusual or new trolls would we see appearing? I'd like to see a troll golem crossover thing because they're similar but very different. So, like, how, how do they work as two different groups? with very different backgrounds, but physiologically quite a lot in common. Mm, It's not quite the question, but that's just something that I wish I could have seen more of. Well, do you think then you'd see a a porcelain troll who'd get mistaken for a golem? Ooh. Yeah, like, where's the border between troll and golem? Trollum. Sorry. (laughs) I've always been interested in the... Uh, this makes me sound like a perv, but the dating life of trolls. Uh, I really <laughs> like Dangerous and Ruby. Yes. And I know you haven't spoken about Monstrous Regiment yet, but I really loved uh, there's a troll called Jade in that book and they have a quick interaction with another troll which speaks to kind of troll mating rituals. And I just, you know, I think the idea of a Discworld troll epic romance or a rom-com a troll rom-com would be great. I, I would, again, read the hell out of that book. Well, now I'm imagining, like, the troll version of, like, Romeo and Juliet, but what things would the trolls be made of that would make them be two clans who their elders forbid them to be together? It was like a chalk and something else. Would they be, like, ebony and ivory or... That's not really stones, well, though, is it? coprolites and magnesioids or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can yeah. it literally repel? Yeah. Oh, like the opposite mm. magnetic poles. <laughs> That's great. I hadn't thought of that. I did I did wonder whether you could have a story about aliens, like if you had because you know how Tethys, the, the water troll, he's not from the Discworld, he's from another planet. Um and he, he's he ended up on the Discworld. It's it's not gone into in a lot of detail. But could you have a troll who was made of like meteorite iron and would there be some weird thing with, like, elves and stuff because of that? I thought that could be interesting. And and I don't think... I haven't read Raising Steam, so I don't know if this is a thing, but when you start to get steam trains on the Discworld, could you have an iron troll? And how would they interact with the trains? Coal troll. Well, yeah. I mean, there's certainly trolls named coal. And then... Or is that a golem? There we go. <laughs> all right. So you've got all these steam trains, and then you've got the fat coal troller. <laughs> and <laughs> maybe a troll like area. gets made into the front of the train so it's got a face. Oh no. And then they have to brick him up behind a whole bunch of little trolls. I really hope, listener, that you know about Thomas the Tank Engine. Well, that's gonna that last little bit is gonna seem really weird. <laughs> I mean it's still really weird even if you do know about the Thomas the Tank Engine. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. You just get real Edgar Allan Poe on them. No one, no one was sitting at home saying, what a sensible way to end the podcast. Absolutely <laughs> what I expected. That visual well, image. <laughs> I think, well, but you are, you are on the money there, Matt. I think this is absolutely how we have to end it. 
Matt, thank you so much for coming back again. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, we'll be back next month, of course, in February when we're 64, 64 months old, that is, on the podcast. Um, when we'll be Are you covering- making a Beatles reference, Ben? I am. I am making a Beatles. Yes. Is that okay? Yes, that's fine. That's, okay. That's, that's, that's good, in fact. <laughs> okay. Well, look, I think it's fair to say the end of this episode's got away from us a bit. But before we go, a couple of important announcements. First of all, next month, we'll be reading another short story. We're going back to Pratchett's early days for the first time in quite a while. And we're going to be reading Rinse Mangle. The Gnome of Even More. This is one of the stories he wrote when writing for children for a newspaper. And this story is quite influential on his later work. So I'm really looking forward to reading it and discussing it. That's next month. You can find it in two collections. It's in A Blink of the Screen. It's also in The Witch's Vacuum Cleaner. That'll be for Pratchett 64. Another announcement, we are once again doing a reading challenge this year. Now, we did this last year. Basically, this is to help you if you want to read some books along with the podcast and then also read some stuff that is like Pratchett but maybe different. We've come up with six prompts where you can find something that has something in common with Pratchett's work but try a new author. And as well as those six prompts, we've also suggested this year that you branch out a little bit and look for some authors who maybe are underrepresented in publishing, particularly in the Anglosphere. We've got details about that on our website, pratchettpodcast.com. Just go to the main menu and under more, you'll find a selection that says reading challenge. Uh, the prompts for last year are also still there and you can also find that challenge on The Story Graph, which is a great website where you can track your reading. Uh, not an ad, we just really like The Story Graph. Uh, if you really like us, Pratchett, while you're at pratchettpodcast.com, why not check out our Support Us page where you can find out how you can support this show and help us keep making it without needing to put any pesky ads in it. Uh, you can find out all the details about memberships in the Oot Club and what little extra goodies you can get by doing that. But really the most important thing is that you will be keeping this podcast going. Uh, we are in our sixth year, hard to believe, and we hope to keep going until we've done every book and all of the significant short stories we think are worth covering on their own, um, or which are just a lot of fun, like this one. Oh, Can so I say fun. one behind-the-scenes tidbit which people don't know and which yeah. really excited me the two times I've been on? is that I don't think people understand that Ben and Liz perform the theme music live for every podcast. <laughs> we swore you to secrecy. That's too good. I just got to let the people know. <laughs> All right. Well, look, I do I have a beautiful singing voice and it's important that the public finally get to know about it. Um, yeah. And I mean, look, it's, it's, we had to pick the instruments very specifically so we could talk whilst playing them for the outro, <laughs> much <laughs> as I'm doing right now. <laughs> The way you can talk around a nose fife, Ben, it's incredible. Uh, don't give away all our secrets, Matt, please. Thank you once again for coming back. And of course, thank you, listener, for listening. And until next time, meeting adjourned. Biscuits? You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Matt Roden. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat63. 
Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.